good day to you. I'm Carl Falk. This is the Falcon Around Podcast. Hope you're having a good day, whatever day it is you are listening to this. To me, it's Tuesday morning. We uh, are still getting snow. We didn't get the foot as advertised, but uh, a lot of things are closed, and I'm sure a lot of people taking today off to uh, spend all day outside shoveling the six inches of snow we got. And by all day, I mean an hour or so. Hope you're having a good day. Syracuse University had a good week. We're going to talk about that. Tremaine Edmonds is one of the Bills' more interesting offseason questions, and I'll explain why. It's it's not that they're going to move on from him this year, but they got a big decision to make with him. We're going to talk a little Major League Baseball. The Dodgers have now a $240 million payroll after adding Justin Turner and, of course, Trevor Bauer. But I think there's a bigger problem in baseball, and it's not the Dodgers. So we'll talk about that as well. And once again, Rob Manfred, if you're listening, hey, dude, I'm trying to give you advice. I'm trying to help you out. Don't take it personal. You suck at your job. I'm just trying to help. Syracuse had a good week. They get two wins and two very needed wins. They beat NC State, and then they come back on Saturday and and put Jim Christian, the Boston College ex coach out of his misery we will talk a little bit about the firing of Jim Christian after I break down the Syracuse week SU now as far as the bracketology goes they're they're 12 and 6 they're 6 and 5 and you know in this pandemic season it's it's a little different to judge you know normally 12 and 6 at this point you might not be all that happy I don't think this is a great Syracuse team by any stretch. I think it's a good enough team to get on a run and make the tournament. I'll explain that. But I think they're starting to find a few things. And, you know, I've been all over Jim Behan the last few podcasts about his lack of adjustments. I think he's made a couple adjustments that have gone a long way. And one of which I think he's brought the zone out a little further on top. I think forever, you hear it every time you watch a Syracuse broadcast. You get the ball to the ACC logo, just beneath the free throw line. Get it to that guy. He can either turn, shoot that 12 to 15-foot jump shot. He can take a dribble, take it in against the lack of Syracuse bigs, or maybe dish down below if the Syracuse defense comes out to greet him. There are options there. And I think that was always the biggest concern. Well, With the extended three-point line, as I mentioned last week, there's more ground to cover. If you're going to protect that, you're going to give up open three-point shots. And in today's day and age of college basketball, everybody shoots a three. A lot of people can make it. It's not that you can give uncontested threes up. You're almost better off allowing a two here and there than a couple uncontested threes because they seem to have much more in the effect of momentum. And obviously the extra point doesn't hurt as well. So I think a little bit of a tweak on defense and a couple players, I think have tweaked their offensive game a little bit. First off, Buddy Beheim's gotten going against NC state. Buddy was a better player, three of five from the three point line, 16 points followed that up with a, one for three from three-point line and 13 points against BC. And I think what's important to note, five three-pointers against NC State, three against 
Boston College, the number of threes Syracuse has taken has gone down. Along those lines, Joe Girard III has seemed to go back to his high school scoring days. I've always said about Joe Girard at Syracuse, the biggest surprise to me has been his lack of ability to shoot the basketball from deep consistently. I thought he'd be a knockdown shooter. You don't score 50 points a game in high school by being just a shooter. You become a scorer. And I think that's something that Joe Girard has lost a little bit while trying to learn the position of the one guard, a position he never played before in his life, trying to get others involved first, trying to be a pass-first guy. The last couple of games, you've seen more and more of Joe putting it on the floor, trying to get to the rim and finishing, and finishing confidently, not going in, trying to draw contact, not going in, looking to throw up some mess. No, taking it to the hole, taking it at guys, and looking to finish. And I think it was on display big time in the first half against Boston College when he, I think, carried Syracuse in that first half. So a couple adjustments there. Joe Quincy Garrier, I think still solid, but I want to see him more on the block. He can shoot the three and I'm okay with him shooting the three, but he's the one guy who can give Syracuse a little bit of an inside presence offensively. And I think that's important. Alan Griffin's been consistent the last couple of games. Griffin had 22 against NC state came back with a nice 14 and eight game against Boston College. So you look at Syracuse, you look at where they are. They're currently, according to Joey Brackets, Joe Lenardi of ESPN, they're in the next four out. Syracuse is going to live on the bubble. That's what their lack of ACC talent and the ACC schedule is going to lead them to every year, even this year, a down year for the ACC. They are a bubble team once again. They've got an opportunity to get off this bubble and continue to progress. If you look at the net ranking, Syracuse is 51st in net ranking, which is the new tool that is used by the committee to help select the tournament field. 51st is good. They've got zero Quadrant 1 wins, though. Quadrant 1 wins, they're 0-4. They're very good in the other quadrants, but... When you're 0-4 in Quadrant 1, that's a big deal. They are 67th in RPI, the old metric that the committee used to use. Now, the RPI meaningless at this point, but I think it's still something to consider when you're trying to evaluate where a team stands, especially a bubble team like Syracuse. There are opportunities in the schedule for those to improve, and the biggest opportunity comes Wednesday night at Louisville. This is a game... Louisville's not a great team this year. They're not your typical Louisville team, but it's a team that's better than Syracuse. But if SU can go into the Yum Center and come away with a win, I think this is huge for the resume. The following Saturday, Notre Dame comes to the Dome, and then Monday, they're at Duke. Syracuse needs to go 2-1 and one in the next three games. And this is a Wednesday, Saturday, Monday season on the brink. If you go two and one, you're at 14 and seven, you're at eight and six in the ACC. I do believe with a win or two in the ACC tournament, the Orange then would make the NCAA tournament. 
that's what this season has become. Can they make the tournament? And let's face it, it's been like this for a while now. And when the recruiting hasn't included five-star players, it's included three and four stars. You're playing in the best basketball conference annually. They're not this year, but generally the ACC is the best conference. This is going to happen. You've slipped back. The conference has moved forward. It's just the war of attrition. So I do think that the Orange can get in. I think they have a very good shot. Wednesday's key, split against Notre Dame and Duke. I'd love to see the road win at Duke for many reasons. If you're going to beat Duke, this is the year. They just had another blow to their season yesterday. And that their star freshman, I believe it's Joshua Jackson, has opted out for the rest of the year. Again, this is what you get when you have a one-and-done mentality like Duke does. Players are there not for Duke. They're there for next year, just like Kentucky. Duke and Kentucky, everyone gets on Calipari about his one-and-done philosophy. Coach K has embraced it and become the same exact philosophical basketball coach is John Calipari. There is no difference. And people can say that Kentucky cheats. That's why they get all these guys. Well, if that's the case, what's Duke doing to get all these guys? There was a lot of smoke around Zion Williamson and his recruitment to Duke. I'm a believer where there's smoke, there's fire. I think Coach K eventually will have a come-to-Jesus moment with this philosophy. Wouldn't even be surprised if he decides to go back against his own philosophy after this year and go to a more traditional team-building philosophy as opposed to, I should say, program-building philosophy as opposed to build a team a year philosophy that he's embraced. I want to talk about Jim Christian, the Boston College coach, getting fired. Now, (coughs) excuse me, on Saturday's telecast, they showed his stats, and he has won about a third of his basketball games at Boston College. And I thought to myself when I saw that, and he said seven years to turn that program around. I thought to myself when I saw those statistics, how does Boston College continue to pay this guy a seven-figure salary when he only performs at a 30% level? You know, you think about that. You have a job, and I'm not for people getting fired. I'm certainly all about people keeping jobs. In this economy, it's, it's hard to find a job. It's hard to keep a job. I don't want to see anybody out of work. But if you're a guy who makes a million dollars plus a year, you've got to be good at your job. And, and frankly, BC hasn't been good in a long, long time. And, you know, you go back to the early days of the Big East. Boston College, what made the Big East so great was the greatness of regions, right? You had the New York City region with the greatness of St. John's. You had the D.C. region with the greatness of Georgetown. You had Pittsburgh being great. So you had that area. Syracuse being great. You had upstate New York. All of these different great regions molded into a great conference. And Boston College was great, whether it be Gary Williams who was there, even Jim O'Brien had a lot of success there. But they haven't been relevant since the ACC came calling. 
And they haven't been relevant in the Big East prior to that for a couple of years. So you look at this school, and, and BC is a school that you should be able to do well with. I know that their basketball facilities pale in comparison to the other facilities throughout the big throughout the ACC. But here you're in one of the greatest cities in America, Boston, Massachusetts. You're in at a campus that's academically fantastic, beautiful campus. You would think you would be able to recruit like crazy to that place, but it hasn't happened. I don't know why it hasn't happened, but it hasn't happened in a long time. Now the question is, who goes there? And One name that's been mentioned, and I find this interesting, would be John Beeline. Beeline, of course, the former Michigan coach, the former LeMoyne coach, Canisius coach, West Virginia coach. He's been around, had success everywhere he's been, decided to try his hand in the NBA. That failed miserably. I don't know that John Beeline's ready to get back into coaching. I know that his son had a failed experiment at Niagara, did some personal issues, got him, let's just say he parted ways before his first season began at Niagara. So now his son is looking to rebuild his career as well. This could be an interesting place for John Beeline to go to Boston College, bring his son with him. John, of course, is getting up there in years. Bring his son with him, allow his son to rebuild his image while being an assistant again, and maybe become the coach in waiting, and the two of them together could turn that program around. And I think if you're a Syracuse fan, this should be a little bit concerning because there aren't very many guaranteed wins in the ACC, but over the last couple of years, Boston College has become one of them. If they then become better, it makes Syracuse's road even that much more difficult. So something to keep an eye on if you're an SU fan. I just, again, BC should be good. And if I'm one of the trustees at Boston College, I'm looking at our sports department and wondering, what are we doing that is hurting ourselves that we aren't able to put a winner on the floor? Both basketball and football used to be relevant and neither have been for a little while. So I think there's work to be done, but I think it's a job that can be done with the right coach going there. There's also other guys that will be in the mix, some young guys who have done good jobs. I always look to the A-10 for a job like that, and I, this is where i got to throw a name in there. And if you're a State Bonaventure fan or an alum, you probably don't want to hear this, but Mark Schmidt, who has done just a, an amazing job, at Bonaventure. He can recruit to Olean, New York. Well, guess where Mark Schmidt went to college? Yeah, Boston College. He's an alum there. You tell me if you can recruit to Olean, you can't recruit to Chestnut Hill. I get it. It's a different class of player. It's a different level of player you're trying to get. But Mark Schmidt's another guy to keep an eye on. And, you know, these are both relevant locally as well. Because I think Olean and St. Bonaventure, there are a lot of local fans who pay attention. And if Mark Schmidt leaves, I know he had a chance to go a couple years ago to Pitt, ended up not doing that, staying at Bonaventure, signing an extension. Pitt, Boston College, they're kind of the same job. But if you 
are an alum for BC. I think that changes it a little bit. So we'll see what happens there. But I, I don't like firing a guy with five games to go left on the contract. Let him finish it out. What good is it doing now other than putting the search in motion? And frankly, if you're going for John Beeline, yeah, you could put that search in motion today. You can almost make the hire tomorrow. But if you're going for a guy like Mark Schmidt or some other young coach at an A10 or Max school, well, you got to wait till their season's done anyway. So what's the hurry? Let the man finish it out and move on. So that's the college basketball report for this week. The Buffalo Bills have an interesting offseason question. I think it's their biggest offseason question. Look, the salary cap is going to come down a little bit this year. It'll go back up next year because there's going to be new TV contracts. So I expect a big jump next year. So I think while there's a lot of concern about the salary cap, I think the way teams are going to get around it for this year is you'll see guys sign with a lot of guaranteed money, signing bonus that's amortized over the length of the contract. But I also think you'll see year one salaries being rather low, year two and three salaries being significantly higher in those deals. And I think the reason you'll see that is because that allows the team to spread the cap out to next year and the following year when that cap will make a significant jump with these new TV deals. So money is always an issue when you're talking about offseason plans. I've detailed the bills and what they have on that defensive line that I think is a waste of money. Guys like Vernon Butler, who next year is going to make almost $8 million. He could be cut easily. $10 million to Mario Addison. And I just don't understand that. Quentin Jefferson, $8 million. Right there, that's $26 million. Now, there are dead cap hits that would be levied against those. So you wouldn't save the full $26 million. But still, there's plenty of money there to get done what they need to get done this off season. In my opinion, with the big question to me is what do you do about Tremaine Edmonds fifth year option? Tremaine Edmonds is a guy who is going to make $4 million this year. The 2021 season, he's become a good linebacker. He's not a great linebacker. He's not a great football player. He might be a great athlete. He's very young, but he's not a great football player. So the question is, the fifth-year option. Every time you draft a guy in the first round, he has a four-year guaranteed contract. The team then has an option for the fifth year. The price increases significantly depending on where that player is drafted. In Josh Allen's case, he has that same option that needs to be picked up before this season begins. I believe the deadline is in June as to when these decisions have to be made. Josh Allen will make about $7 million next year. The following year, if the option's picked up, it'll be about seventeen. The fifth-year option gives the Bills another year to – wait, in my opinion, before they sign Josh Allen to a long-term deal. Tremaine Edmonds, his $4 million deal this year, his fourth year, will jump to about $13 million the following year. So if you're going to make the decision to pick it up, it's there are four questions that you have to answer. 
and to me, those are the four questions that decide this. Is he the player he was drafted to be? Can you upgrade the position with similar or less money? Does his draft status affect the decision? And would he get the $13 million on the open market? Those are the four questions to me, Brandon Bean and Sean McDermott have to answer. And frankly, this has got to be Brandon Bean because Sean McDermott loves his defensive toys. He would love to keep all these defensive linemen and, and sacrifice on the offensive side of the ball if need be, just because he's a defensive minded coach. He's always going to be defense first, even in an offensive league, even though he's the coach of a team that was carried to the AFC championship in spite of its defense by its offense. So look at these questions, Brandon Bean. Let's take them one by one. Is he the player he was drafted to be? Absolutely not. When the Bills took Tremaine Edmonds, I thought he was going to be a sideline-to-sideline playmaker, a guy who was all over the field, a guy who was an impact player from day one. He has simply not been that. He is slow to react. He is hesitant more than aggressive. And I think even though he's a solid player, that's about all he is. He's not a great middle linebacker. Now, three years into the league and this year, marred some by injury, you should be a little more patient. And you should probably give the guy a chance to develop. And hopefully the Bills will look at this fully and and try to figure out a way to develop it. I've thrown it out there that maybe he's the edge rusher that the Bills have been looking for. Don't think, rush the passer. Get up in, 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 in pass stance, get up on the line of scrimmage as an edge rusher, and rush the passer. He's got the perfect prototype body for it. Maybe it's a position switch that turns things around for him. So, no, he's not the player he was drafted to be. Two, can you upgrade the position for similar or less money? And I would say yes is the answer to this one. $13 million is going to go a long way. $13 million is probably what Matt Milano will get this offseason. Matt Milano is a better player right now than Tremaine Edmonds. Obviously, different positions, or we would have a different conversation. But I think there are guys out there who you could bring in who can play to the same level for less money or play to a higher level for the same money. And and I think that's where you really have to look at things. If you draft a second round middle linebacker he probably isn't going to be a huge drop off from Tremaine Edmonds after the first six to eight games of his career once he gets settled in the league again because I don't think Edmonds has begun been a very good player he's been a good player not a great player I think a second round rookie can be a good player in his rookie year so I think the answer is yes Here's the interesting one, and here's where egos come into play. Does his draft position affect this decision? And this is wholeheartedly, absolutely it does, 100%. Last year, Brandon Bean made the decision, well, two years ago now, that they were not going to pick up the fifth-year option on Shaq Lawson. Shaq Lawson was a Doug Whaley draft pick. It was not a Brandon Bean draft pick. It's very easy to say somebody else's pick was a mistake. 
it's very difficult to say your pick was mistaken. Frankly, I look at a first-round pick who you don't pick up his fifth-year option is a miss, pure and simple. Guy might be a good player, but if you're not willing to pay him that fifth year, you should have drafted somebody else. And, and that is a very difficult thing to do, especially in a case like Tremaine Edmonds, because Tremaine Edmonds is not a bad football player by any stretch. Nobody would make that argument. He's a good football player. He's just not a very good football player. He's not a great football player. You draft guys in the first round not to be good, but to be great. If that's not the case, you should trade out of the first round and draft second or third rounders because that's where you get the good players and occasionally will hit on a great player. And again, the Bills traded up to get Edmonds. So there's a lot here that Brandon Bean has got to swallow if he's going to readily admit that Tremaine Edmonds hasn't become the player he was drafted to be. And here's the most important part, and I'm going to bring Shaq Lawson's name up again. Would he get $13 million on the open market? Yes, but no. What I mean by that is Shaq Lawson was to get $10 million if the Bills picked up his fifth-year option. They said no. He went to Miami, did get an average of $10 million over the length of his contract. But as we know in the NFL, generally players don't play out their full contract. So Shaq Lawson not likely to get the full $10 million a year that he would have gotten from the Bills. So – I don't think Tremaine Edmonds gets $13 million on the open market. I think somebody signs him because, again, he's a good football player. He's young. They may look at him and say, yeah, we can move him to edge rusher and have a dominant player. And I don't know if Tremaine Edmonds would be open to that or if his agents would be open to that. I just look at what he is as a middle linebacker, and I think there's better available. The conclusion is, and my conclusion, is – they shouldn't pick up his fifth-year option, but they should be open to signing him to a contract if he makes a big step forward next year. In other words, you're not going to pick up the fifth-year option now. If he makes that step and becomes the player you were thought he was going to be when you drafted him, then you should do everything you can to keep him. And oftentimes it doesn't work out because the player's feelings are hurt because you didn't pick up their fifth-year option in the first place. Well, sometimes the player needs that kick in the ass to become the player they're going to become, to become the guy that is deserving of that money. I just don't think it's going to happen for Tremaine Edmonds this year. I don't think he's going to take that next step. And when you look at the Bills' decision-making, I think it's like this. I think – Brandon Bean and Sean McDermott are going to want to keep him. I think they will keep him. And I think it's a mistake to guarantee that option because I don't think without that guarantee, with that guarantee, I don't think Tremaine Edmonds takes that big step. There's a big step there for him to go. I don't know if he'll ever take it, but I think there is a big step for him to go. Quarterback carousel, man, this offseason could be, one of the most unique off seasons the NFL's ever had. 
If you need a quarterback, this is your year. New England Patriots have needed a quarterback now for two years. I think they have a lot of options. The question is, do you want to make a big trade like the Lions and the Rams made for Stafford or Goff? Do you want to draft a guy? There are five draftable quarterbacks in the first round. Or do you want to see what the scrap heap has to offer? I mean, a guy like Carson Wentz isn't going to end up in the scrap heap. He's going to be a trade victim. Deshaun Watson wants to be traded, wants out. Here's my prediction for Deshaun Watson. Houston Texans, who moved on from J.J. Watt, by the way, the Bills haven't signed him yet, and that's concerning. But that's okay. We'll, we'll get to that when it happens. The thing with Deshaun Watson is you can get three first-round picks. You can get another player. But you're not getting a franchise quarterback. And with those three first-round picks, there's no guarantee there's a franchise quarterback. Look at the quarterbacks taken in the top ten. There were quote-unquote franchise quarterbacks. Sam Darnold, Josh Rosen. You look further, Marcus Mariota, Jameis Winston. There are so many guys that were drafted to be franchise quarterbacks who simply don't do it. So get all the first-round picks you want. There's no guarantee you're going to replace Deshaun Watson. So to me, the Texans are going to sit on Deshaun Watson, not make an effort to move him. And Watson's going to dig his heels in, but there comes a point where he has to report to get credit for the year. I believe it's after 10 weeks. I fully believe Deshaun Watson is going to hold out for 10 weeks, eventually play the last six games of the year, get credit for the year, and then move forward and try to get traded again next offseason. It's going to be a very interesting game of cat and mouse. I mentioned Sam Darnold. What do the Jets do with him? And here's where team building is an art, in my opinion. The Jets, who screwed up the first-round pick, don't, they won't get Trevor Lawrence, will have the second-round pick. And, and there's guys that people are going to fall in love with, Justin Fields, Zach Wilson, the kid from BYU. Mac Jones, I don't think, is going to be in play at the second-round pick. But uh, there's a chance later on in the first round he goes. And Trey Lance, certainly another name to keep an eye on, the kid from North Dakota. But with the Jets, they have a lot of draft capital because they traded Jamal Adams, so they got a couple extra picks out of that. They're sitting there at two. If they decide to ride with Sam one more year, and frankly, it is one more year because go back to the fifth-year option conversation, no chance you pick up Sam Darnold's fifth-year option. Can't do that. You could look to move him and add more draft capital, probably get a two and a three for Sam, and slide down a little bit in the draft to where you're more comfortable taking a guy like Mac Jones as opposed to taking him at two. There's so many things Joe Douglas can do. They've got Mekhi Becton, who looked like a great player at left tackle. You could add that Panay Sewell kid from Oregon, who's supposed to be a generational tackle. Now all of a sudden you get the best bookends in the league. Doesn't matter who the quarterback is, he's going to be protected much better. You could do that. There's so many ways to go. I'm fascinated to see what the Jets will do, because to me, they're not about the quarterback right now. And they shouldn't be. They should be about team building. And it's just a matter of how is it best 
to build your team? And the best answer may be keep Sam Darnold, decline his fifth-year option, keep him for a year, slide down from two, insulate that, and try to get another first-round pick for next year. And if you're able to do that, you've got then three first-round picks next year to go get the quarterback you need in that draft if Sam doesn't take that step forward. Steelers are interesting because what do they do? They're Ben Roethlisberger's contract is just absurd for this coming year. He didn't play very well this year. I think he'll have a better year next year. Second year off surgery generally is a better year. But they have to restructure his deal. They have to put that cap number to a much more manageable spot to move on and continue to be good. And then, of course, you got a couple guys, Dak Prescott and Dallas. The Cowboys couldn't come to an agreement last year. They signed him to the franchise tag. He got $34 million, broke his ankle in a horrific way. So now he's coming back from a big foot, big foot injury. Part of what made Dak the player he was was his mobility. So you question, is he going to be the player he was? Do you, again, try to re-sign him for a long-term deal? Or do you franchise him again at $37 million? Or do you move on from Dak Prescott? You know, there's a guy out there. I'm going to throw Jameis Winston's name in there. And it, it's fairly assumed that he will take over from Drew Brees in New Orleans. Now, I'm not entirely sure that will happen because they seem to be infatuated with all the things that Taysom Hill can do. But you look at Jameis Winston, this guy threw 30-plus touchdowns in Tampa. Yeah, there were 30 interceptions too. But I think getting him help, letting him sit for a year and learn from Sean Payton, I think Jameis Winston has another career ahead of him a la Ryan Tannehill. And I think the team that signs him is going to be very, very happy with that signing. I don't know who makes that move, New England possibly, although I can't see Belichick going for Jameis just because of the turnover factor. But then there's a team like the Colts, who've now gone, they'll have their third quarterback in three years. Andrew Luck retired, and then, of course, Phillip Rivers comes in. He's now retired. Where do they go from here? There are a lot of teams that need quarterback. The Colts, certainly one of them. Carolina, Washington. Dallas has to figure their thing out. Denver with Drew Locke. What do they do? Mention the Jets, the Patriots, the Chicago Bears are dying to find a quarterback. It's just amazing to me that in this day and age, with all of these quarterbacks, all of these possibilities, right now, there are 12 teams by my count only 12 that know who their quarterback is going to be for this year. There's only 12 teams that are going to be certain. Arizona, Seattle. Yeah, I know Russell Wilson said some things. Russell Wilson's going nowhere. Tampa with Brady coming back. Packers, Cleveland, Baltimore, Cincinnati, Tennessee, the Chargers. The Jags are going to have Trevor Lawrence. so They know their guy. And, of course, the Bills in Kansas City. The rest of the league, it's a crapshoot. It's amazing that there are actually a surplus of quarterbacks. And they're not all great. You know, a guy like Marcus Mariota very well could be a starter this year. Mariota's not going to be a great quarterback. 
but you can win football games if you coach them up and if you build a team around them. And I think that's where, going back to the Jets team building thing, it's so imperative that you do things properly in this offseason, in this time. Plan your team building. Don't plan the quarterback position. So it's going to be a lot of talk about that as we go through. Uh, before I get to baseball, quick note on the Sabres. They're back on ice. They played last night. Didn't get a shot off in the third period. With the last 23 minutes of the game without getting a shot on goal, it a loss to the Islanders. I, I don't want to be rude, but I'm more interested in Jesse Pagula's tennis career right now than I am in the Sabres because they've been gone now for a couple of weeks because of the COVID. They come back, look uninspired, look like the same bad team they have for the last eight, nine years. I just I, I, I can't do it anymore as far as the hope or expectation that it's going to change. Nothing changes in Saberland. It's the same story over and over again with a new face behind the bench and a new general manager making the same mistakes. It's just Ownership hasn't figured out how to run a hockey team. Ownership got very fortunate with the hiring of Sean McDermott. Sean McDermott brought in Brandon Bean. Otherwise, the Bills would be in the same mess that the Sabres are in. Sabres just can't figure it out. And that's Terry and Kim Pagula. Let's just hope that Jesse, the tennis player, professional player, and I hate that everyone just refers to her as daughter of Bill's owners. How about this? Professional tennis player who's having a career tournament in the Australian Open. How about giving her credit for what she's accomplished as opposed to talking about what her parents do? I think the fact that a kid who grew up with a billionaire in a billionaire household and worked her ass off to become a professional tennis player and is having this run deserves a ton of credit when she could have just laid around all day and been a billionaire. But no, she got out of bed every day and worked her ass off to become a professional tennis player. Props to her. It's great, great to see. And I'll be hoping she continues on. Get to the semis, get to the finals. Even to, I mean, she's in the quarters, so it is an amazing accomplishment and a great run for an unranked player to do so. Major League Baseball. Everyone's freaking out about the Dodgers. Dodgers, their payroll is killing baseball. $240 million, $30 million over the luxury tax. Man, that is bad for baseball. Dodgers won a championship for the first time in 30-plus years. I think it was 31 years last year. Well, that's something that you want to back up. If your ownership, your, your management, you're going to make money in L.A. You're always going to make money. They've got a huge television contract. They've got the ability when fans come back to charge very high ticket prices because of the market they're in. That's a money-making operation, and they want to win. It's not about just competing. They want to win. You sign the best pitcher on the market in Trevor Bauer, that's a great move. You bring in Justin Turner, two years, $17 million per. All right, he's a key part of the team. 
you're keeping the team together and you're adding to it. They continue to develop great talent through this system. So people are freaking out over the wrong thing. When you look at the Dodgers, they're doing what every team should try to do. Now, every team can spend $240 million, but every team should try to win. That's what the Dodgers are doing. Unfortunately, baseball's got a bigger problem than the Dodgers. It's the bottom end. If you're going to have a salary cap, which essentially baseball does with the $210 million luxury tax threshold, you go over that, you get taxed. You stay under that, you don't get taxed. Teams that spend a lot of money, like the Yankees and Red Sox, are very cognizant of staying under that in this economic climate. You look at what's going on, though, at the bottom end of the pay scale. Right now, according to Track, Pittsburgh Pirates payroll is $31.5 million. That's their projected payroll for 2021. The Cleveland Indians, $36.5 million. Baltimore Orioles, $35 million. You add the three of them together, you haven't reached the major league average payroll, which is somewhere around $115 million. How can you have three teams added together that don't equal the average? If you're going to have a salary cap, you need to have a salary floor. It's basic sense. You want to go $210 million as the ceiling? Then have $70 million be the floor. And if you're an owner who doesn't agree with that, you're in the wrong business. I don't know what the Pirates' business plan looks like especially in this pandemic with no fans, you're paying $35 million. And if you're a company with zero revenue other than television contracts, they're paying $35 million in salaries probably looks like a pretty poor business plan. But here's the thing. When there are fans in the building, which there have been every year except for last year and probably for the first part of this year, you've made money. And, and I don't like telling people you don't have to make money on sports teams. It's their business. If they want, if they're in business to make money, it's why everyone goes into business. But Major League Baseball needs to do something about this. But Rob Manfred, the puppet that he is for the owners, will never take a stand on this. If you're a Pirates fan, if you're an Orioles fan, if you're a Tribe fan, what do you, where's your expectations this year? What are you hoping for? Uh, 500 season? 81 wins? That'd be remarkable. If any of those three teams get to 81 wins, manager of the year candidate right there. I mean, you look at the Indians, they got Terry Francona, one of the best managers in baseball, if not the best. Uh, if, if I'm hiring a manager tomorrow, I'd love to hire Terry Francona above pretty much every other manager in baseball. Yet, Who's he going to manage? A couple of guys. It's, this is like the Cleveland Indians team from the movie Major League. Instead of Terry Francona, they should get Lou Brown. He won't answer the phone because he's got a guy on hold waiting for an estimate on a pair of white walls. But, you know, why wouldn't you? I, I don't understand how baseball can just accept this and think everything's fine. Sell it to the fans is, yeah, hey, I, I know things are a little weird right now, and I understand that right now there's no revenue, 
coming in. So we're just going to let everyone do what they want. This has got to change. It's not the Dodgers that are a problem. The Dodgers are doing what every team should and hopefully would do in the same situation. If every team had those revenue streams, they would absolutely be trying to do the same thing. The problem is the teams that aren't trying. And, and you don't have to be a big market team to try. The Royals have an $80 million payroll. The Twins are up around there as well. That's more than acceptable. That's a, a budget that fits Major League Baseball. If, if you're spending $80 million, I, I can't say a bad thing about you. But if you're spending $35 million and you're the Baltimore Orioles, why would you be a fan? Why would you go to a game unless you're going to watch the other team? I just think it's an embarrassment for Major League Baseball. And I feel bad. You know, you look at these teams, the Pirates and Orioles in particular, were so good in the 70s and the 80s. There's a lot of fans left over from that. The Orioles here in Rochester, because they were the parent club of the Red Wings forever, there were a lot of fans who went to those games and, you know, became Oriole fans. And now those Oriole fans, they're going to stop being baseball fans because the team that they like sucks and has zero chance from day one. And it's accepted. How is this not bad for the league? Hey, somebody wake up Bud Seeley. Tell him to call Rob Manfred and see if Rob Manfred has a pulse because somebody's got to take over baseball and knows what they're doing. I get it that maybe I'm old and I, I love baseball and I'm nostalgic with this, but this is wrong. And, you know, you worry about speeding up the game and you worry about, you know, juicing the ball or not juicing the ball because of the home runs. How about this? How about put a payroll floor in and put it into the bylaws that everyone has to spend $70 million. You want, to, you want to get the DH in? You want to do things? I'm sure the Players Association would be all for that. This next round of collective bargaining, which is going to happen after this season, is going to be very interesting in Major League Baseball. And I would expect a long, long work stoppage because there are so many issues. And Major League Baseball's leadership is so poor, there's no way they'll be able to work around them in time to prevent loss of games. Again, I can't wait to say something good about baseball. It's just every week when I sit down to do this, I find something more bad to say. Well, that's it for this week. Hope you enjoyed it. We'll talk next week again. Thanks for listening, everybody. I'm Carl Falk. This is the Falk and Around podcast.